Nothing wakes your senses quite as quickly in the morning as walking through a misty graveyard. It doesn't matter if you're not expecting anything supernatural. It doesn't matter if you don't believe anything's going to happen. Walking through a graveyard and as the mist rolls over the tombstones and as you move through the place of gathered bones and really rather spooky remains of who knows who, you wake up and you're alert. I imagine that the people that came to the tomb, the ladies from Galilee that morning, that Sunday morning, were rather alert. They were worried. You see, as they came to this place, they didn't know what they would expect, what they could expect to find. On Friday, they had lost their dear Savior, Jesus. Over the weekend, his tomb had become a fortress. Soldiers upon soldiers gathered around and protected this tomb to make sure that nobody could come in or come out. And so as the women of Galilee came to the tomb, they had no idea what they were to find. They weren't even sure it was legal for them to be there. And so they scuttled along until finally they came to the tomb. And what would they find? Was it going to be yet another garrison of soldiers pushing them back, moving the perimeter even further out so, so fans and followers could not catch a glimpse of where their savior lay? Or would they find their precious friend Jesus' remains desecrated and disrespected and left in some kind of awful display. They didn't know what to think when they rounded the corner and there in front of them was an empty, open tomb. They could see right into it. It was a cave. It was just a, a, a notch carved out of the rock and they could see in there that it was empty. And they didn't know what to think. This could mean good or bad. It could mean good, obviously, or it could be, mad, be bad that people had come and removed Jesus out of this space and done who knows what with his remains. And so their hearts are gripped with anxiety. They're nervous. They're anxious. They're stressed as they clutch their robes and they race to the entrance of the tomb to see what they might find. I think it's fair to say that we as a nation, come to this moment, we grip our robes, we sense the anxiety, we feel the stress, and we look now at what's before us with incredible questions. This whole week, the United States has been gripped with a fascination and an addiction to refresh the internet browser. And maybe some of you have done that even just this morning, as you have refreshed refreshed, refreshed to see what you can expect, what's going to happen. And you can't tell the future and you have people guessing what the future is going to be, but you don't know. And they don't know. And most often they get it wrong. This is a moment of anxiety. And this is a moment of questions. And sure, there's going to be people from all over the world and all over the political spectrum in this moment, from wherever you come from in one sense, celebrating and in another sense, worried. It's the same thing at the presence of the tomb. There are people celebrating in the surrounding town of Jerusalem. Finally, that fake false prophet, the one they call the Messiah has met what he deserves and he was crucified and he was put away. And there's people in Jerusalem that are celebrating. There's people also that are grieving. 
And there's probably something all in between as people don't know what to feel in this moment. There are people all over the spectrum, even now, not sure what to feel in this moment. The last several weeks, Pastor Andreas has been guiding us through the book of Luke. Christianitics has been looking what it looks like when our politics, when our perspective on the world gets confronted by the example of Jesus. And as we've been going through the book of Luke, hopefully the way that we view the world has been impacted by what we've heard and seen. And now we arrive at Luke chapter 24, this scene of them arriving to the tomb and finding it empty. And in this moment, I believe we find a model for what we as a church can do as we confront moments like this of question, of anxiety, of worry, of question, of mystery, of nervous wondering. In Luke chapter 22, we find three supernatural encounters. The first one happens only moments after we've left these ladies from the, from the city of Galilee. They come to this moment. They look at this empty tomb and we find the very first supernatural encounter. They come into the tomb. They're worried. They're nervous. They have questions. This is a moment of mystery. And in this tomb, they have a supernatural encounter with two angels. These angels find these ladies and they ask them a question in verse five. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And the angels say, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified. And on the third day, be raised again. And in the first supernatural encounter, Here in Luke chapter 24, these women are reminded to remember. They knew what was going to happen. Jesus had told them over and over again. They were students of scripture. This was prophesied. Jesus had walked with them and said, I will be laid in the tomb and I will rise again. And he had told them again and again and again what to expect. And now these women are worried and they're wondering. And the first supernatural encounter is to remind them to remember. You know this, the angel tells them. You know all of this. You know what to expect. You know what this moment means. You know what you're supposed to focus on. You know what you're supposed to do. Remember, remember, remember. Luke chapter 24 continues. And we find our second supernatural encounter just a few verses later when Jesus, unbeknownst and in disguise, begins walking along this group on their way to the city of Emmaus. And this duo is worried about what's been happening. Jesus has been crucified. They're followers of Jesus and they don't know what to do. And they're worried and anxious and nervous. There's mystery and question, anxiety in this moment. And Jesus pulls up beside them and he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Verse 17. And they stood there, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's been happening here? And Jesus, not wanting to side rail them in any one direction, asked them, what kinds of things have been happening? And this group is downcast. They're worried. Not unlike maybe, just maybe, one or two of you. Because hopefully, we're a family that is wide and ranging and broad. And I imagine there's people listening to this moment that feel all kinds of different ways. And Jesus comes alongside them and says, what are you feeling? What are you discussing? What is it 
that you're thinking about. Jesus cares what's on our mind. He cares what's on our hearts. He cares what we're feeling. And he asks them what's going on with them. And they say, we're worried about this. What's happened with Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Jesus cuts in and says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see, these people more than anybody else should have known what this moment meant and what this moment would entail. And Jesus is walking along with them and in a tender prophetic rebuke, he says, you should have known that this was going to happen. You've read the prophets when they said to Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You know this stuff. The prophets have been saying this year after year throughout the Bible. The prophets have told us that this would happen. And they, they're bringing up points about he, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. And, and Jesus understands that that's a misunderstanding of what the prophets had said. He said, that's not what Jesus was here for. That's not, Jesus wasn't here to build up a national interest or protect your national concerns. He says, the prophets told us all of this. And Jesus in very careful and very tender rebuke reminds them, you should believe the prophets. They've been telling you all of this from the beginning. The third supernatural encounter happens Only a few verses later, and we don't know if it happens the same day or if it happens a long time afterwards, but we find Jesus now appearing to the disciples. They're gathered together in a room and Jesus appears and he tries to convince them that he is who he says he is, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and they're doubtful. They're not sure if he's literally there among them or if this is some kind of mirage, a a magic trick. And so Jesus asks for something to eat. They give him a piece of fish and he eats it in front of them. And I imagine that they're uncomfortably watching him chew everything. You, in the room, you can hear a pin drop. You can hear Jesus's teeth. It's, it's uncomfortable. And Jesus begins to talk to them about this moment of doubt. He says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law and the prophets and Psalms. And then he opens their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He says, this is what it was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He turns to the disciples and I imagine him looking at each one of them, lingering on their faces. He knows them. He knows them by name. They know him. And he says, you are witnesses of these things and I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have received power from on high. Jesus in these three different supernatural encounters, first with the women of Galilee, next with the travelers to Emmaus and third with the disciples only moments before he ascends, seeks to communicate to them what the church should be and what the church should do in the moment of strife, anxiety, concern, questions, and nervous worry. 
You see, there are people that are going to come to this political moment and they're going to say, man, I'm going to hope that the election goes this way. And somebody says, well, I'm going to hope it goes that way. And if it goes your way, we're all in big trouble. And if it goes in your way, we're all in big trouble. And the church, you and I, the called out ones, we can be tempted to forget that our mission is not to maintain or support any one particular political direction. It's to stand outside of all of that and to live out the witness that Jesus calls us to have in these three supernatural interactions. Number one, remember, he tells the women from Galilee, the angels tell them, you guys already know this stuff. We as a church, we remember how the story is written and we're called to remember how it's going to end. Remember, remember, remember. Next, it's a a call to believe the prophets. The prophets have told us that this would happen. And number three, stay and wait for the power. Those three things, to remember the plan, to believe the prophets and stay and receive the power is something that makes sense to a lot of us. We understand it. We've heard the sermons on it, but so often we reverse that order. We mess it up. We get it all wrong when we as a church, we come to a moment like this and we forget the plan. We ignore the prophets and we lust after power. The total opposite of what God has told us to do because in moments like this, we need to remember the plan, believe the prophets and stay and receive power from on high. But that isn't the way that we operate. Even in Jesus' own time, in John chapter 6, we see a scene where the people sought to make Jesus king by force. And Jesus has to disappear to move out of the way because these people, they weren't remembering the plan. They weren't believing what the prophet said would have to happen in Isaiah and Jeremiah and in the Psalms. They were lusting after power because if they could make Jesus king, then maybe he could be a counterbalance to the Roman empire. Maybe, and maybe this was wishful thinking and maybe they were really swinging for the fences with Jesus as king, with all of that healing stuff, with all of that raised from the dead stuff, that water to wine stuff. If he could do a little bit of that water walking stuff with Jesus as king, maybe he could be, maybe he could be a contender against the Caesar. Maybe he could make this whole Jerusalem thing. Maybe he could make this whole Hebrew Israelite thing into its own empire. Forget the Roman empire. We could have the Jesus, the the Christian empire, the Christendom. Oh, and their minds just began to race as they thought of the possibilities. But Jesus disappears and doesn't give them the chance because that isn't the plan. That ignores the prophets and that lusts after power that's very different than the kind of power that Jesus wants for all of us. You see, going all the way back, this was a part of the MO because this is the human desire in all of us. Go all the way back and you find Samuel encountering the the prophet Samuel encountering the people in Samuel chapter eight and the people come to him. Samuel is old by this time. And they say, Samuel, when are we going to have some kind of power for ourselves, Samuel? We're just knocking about here as if we don't have any kind of direction or any kind of clout amongst the nations. And they come to him and they say in verse five of chapter eight, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. They wanted what they, what the others have. 
The others have kings. We want kings. The others have kings with armies. Well, then maybe we'll have kings with armies. And Samuel tries to persuade them that that isn't the way, that this isn't what you want. It's not going to lead to what what you want. And the people are unconvinced. And they demand it. And God allows them in a moment of of gracious sadness for them to see where this all goes. And so Saul is anointed as a king when they're told that this isn't what they want and his kingdom ends poorly. And after Saul comes David and then David lives out an example that is also at times embarrassing and it ends with a whimper. And then David is followed by Solomon. And after Solomon, there is a division in the kingdoms. No longer is the nation of the people of Israel divided under one kingdom, but now you have a kingdom of the north and a kingdom of the south. And you have a kingdom of Judah and you have a kingdom of Israel. And it's because these people can't get along and they want power and they want to lead power in one particular way. And they begin these kingdoms of Judah and the kings of Israel begin to form treaties with all of the surrounding nations. And with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, you have a split between the kings and between the kingdoms. No longer are these two united. In fact, they would go to war with one another throughout the next several generations. And you can draw a straight line from the desire to have Saul all the way to what you end up with in the reign of Jehoiakim many, 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 many years later. Jehoiakim, now a dozen kings later, finds himself a weak ruler. He's the king of Judah, but he doesn't have a lot of power. He's made a treaty with the kingdom of Egypt to hold him in place. He's a, he's a vassal king. And then Babylon comes and Babylon doesn't have to do a lot to take over Jehoiakim and his kingdom. And you have Jehoiakim essentially weakly surrender to the Babylonian attack. And Babylon takes all of their young men, all of their treasure, all of their wealth. And takes it back to Babylon. And into that attack goes Daniel. This is obviously not, not a big surprise of a story. We know the story of Daniel. But to see it in the context of a people who have always wanted power. Who have never known what to do in the moment. Because they ignore the prophets and they forget the plan. Daniel is the product of that history of the people that forget the plan. And so Daniel is carted off. To Babylon, but Daniel is faithful. Daniel understands what the moment requires of his people. And when he gets to Babylon and he encounters a king that is constantly seeking to amass more power for himself, he's a pagan secular monarch that wants only more power, ever more power. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Nebuchadnezzar wants somebody to come and interpret it for him. And Daniel, were he to be like the kings before him, and he's not a king, but were he to be like the leaders before him, he would seek to have a compromise with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, if you can do this for me, I'm willing to help you in this way. But instead he comes before the king and he makes no bones about it, no compromise. He looks at the king and he says, there is only one in the world. There's only one in the universe that knows all of the mysteries. And it's only he, it's only God that can interpret your dream. And so he begins to lay out to Nebuchadnezzar what he had in his dream and what it means. 
You, O king, are the gold head of the statue that you saw in your dream. Then in your dream, there was arms of silver and then there was a, a, a torso of bronze and king, these are kingdoms that are gonna come after you. Your kingdom has a finite end. And after you will come another and then another and another. Then there was legs of iron in your dream, O king, and that represents another power and another kingdom that will come. And after that, there are feet of clay and iron that are mixed. And that represents a divided kingdom that will come. A divided time in history, O king. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar squirming and moving around in his throne as Daniel speaks truth to power. In that moment, Daniel is not worried about himself because he is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He's remembering the plan. He's not only believing the prophets, he is taking this moment of anxiety, division, and concern, and he is prophetically witnessing in this moment. And he receives the power, all right, enough power to be convincing to the king, and the king hears Daniel as Daniel finishes his dream and says, but O king, At the end of this time, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Daniel 2.44, nor will it be left to another king. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will in self endure forever. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, you might be king and you might have all the power, but there will come one day when the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will crush all kingdoms, that will surpass all nations, that will be sovereign over all human leaders. Daniel gives us an example of what it looks like in these moments to live as the church, to live in the way that God wants us to live, to live the way that Jesus is hoping that his disciples react at the end of his life. Because you see, Daniel understands that in these moments, he has but one choice. He must serve only the king of kings. The moment is divided. He's not even certain who's going to be king tomorrow. Later in the book of Daniel, we find these fascinating scenes where Daniel is interpreting visions and he's interpreting signs to kings, knowing very well that another king will be in power within hours. Daniel is outside of national interests. He stands prophetically as a witness to nations as they come and go. He is faithful regardless of who sits in the seat of power on this earth because Daniel understands that there's a king above it all. And so he is able to witness. He is able to influence. He is able to affect. And he's able to love in a way that matters not who comes and who goes. You see, we will always live in the time of divided kingdoms. God is always on the throne. God's people are always called to do the same work. Remember the plan, believe the prophets and receive the power. You see, that's why it's not enough for us in moments of division and anxiety to tell one another, remember brother, the Lord is on his throne. It's true but it stops short of fully encompassing what God means in this moment. Daniel could have walked into any one of these rooms and said, the Lord is on his throne. But Daniel didn't do just that. Daniel acted in a way that was faithful. He received power and he was faithful in the moments that required it. 
The same way that the, his Hebrew friends were faithful when it required it, even turning to the king and saying, our Lord will deliver us from the furnace of fire. But even if he doesn't, we will stay faithful. That is outside of personal interest. That's outside of national interest. That is a faithfulness that supersedes national interest. You see, when God tells the disciples, when Jesus tells the disciples, stay and wait to receive power, it implies a certain amount of resiliency for God's people. We won't always have what we need in the moment that we hope for it. Even now, there are people who are wondering, God, where are you in this election? It did not go the way that I wanted it to go. In the same way that there have been people praying that prayer, every generation of every country on the planet, because it hasn't always been 2020. It hasn't always been our own interests and it hasn't always been U.S. elections that matter. God has been king during every election in the history of mankind. And it hasn't always turned out the way you wanted and it hasn't always turned out the way I wanted. And God is calling us to not simply rest in the need for immediate gratification because we have to have a staying power, stay and receive the power of God. God is interested in a resilient people that follow the lamb wherever he goes, even if we aren't there to get there at the end. There were people that walked in the Exodus that were faithful that didn't reach Canaan. God needs us to be faithful, even when it feels like the moment isn't what God wants. God's kingdom is still sure, and God's kingdom will still be set up at the end of time. But that staying power, that staying and resiliency to receive power, what does that mean? What kind of power? Oftentimes, we are tempted as a church to seek the wrong kind of power to lust after a power that wasn't promised us. Ephesians chapter three says, for the reason I bow my knees before the father, before the father whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love The power of God is in his person. It's in who he is. It's in his love. The power that we're to have as Christians is to love regardless of the moment, regardless of the season, regardless of the outcome of any election. It is a love that understands that we do not lead through coercion. We do not lead through compulsion. God's people lead through influence and through attraction the way that God's love has always led. God doesn't com- isn't compulsory. God doesn't coerce. He calls, he attracts, and he influences. The church is powerless when it seeks earthly power. The church survives when the church stays faithful. And staying faithful can sometimes look like sacrifice. That's what the Hebrews understood when they said, even if he doesn't deliver us, we will still serve him. Daniel was willing to sacrifice and it was that willingness to sacrifice and not seek for power, but be willing to wait for the power that matters that Daniel was able to have a witness that Nebuchadnezzar says, I want that. I want to serve that God. 
It is an odd moment for us in 2020. It is a moment of question and it's a moment of anxiety. And I can think of one other time when the church was stressed in similar way, probably several others. I think of the time when this church was launching, speaking of the early church, Jesus ascends and the early church has to deal with a political climate that's probably more weird than the one that we're in. You see Claudius Augustus Caesar passes away not long after the ascension and after him comes his son Nero. (coughs) And Nero comes to power and Nero is a very interesting person. He is power hungry. He wants to he, he wants to uh, ravage the Christians. Many say that he persecutes the Christians. <clears throat> He's accused of burning Rome and blaming it on the Christians so that he can have a palace for his own. And Nero comes to the end of his life and in AD 68, we read in the history books that Nero faces a coup of sorts. One of the other governors in the country, Vindex, tries to elect a different emperor, uh, to to step into his place, an emperor named Galba. And now Nero is in a place where he doesn't know what to do. Is he still emperor? Does he still have the power? You can imagine the early Christian church wondering, who is going to be the new leader? How are they supposed to root for in this election? After Galba is put into place, Galba is replaced by Otho and Otho is replaced by Vespasian and Titus. And in the time of Domitian, Christians during this time persecuted and run and raced about, tossed from one end to the other, persecuted under one ruler and not under the other. And under Domitian, we find something fascinating. It's in AD 96, under the rule of Domitian, that these words are written. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show the servants the things that must soon take place. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Because in this moment, when the world is burning and there's anxiety all around the world, John is on the island of Patmos putting pen to paper, declaring a prophetic utterance that there is only one king in the world There is only one ruler of all kings on earth, and that is Jesus Christ. John demonstrates for us in a lineage of prophetic people doing what we're supposed to be doing, regardless of election outcomes. John is seeing emperors come and go, Roman dynasties overthrown, and John declares there is only one ruler over all the earth, and I will act on his behalf. I will stay and receive his power of love and act as if I serve the one true king. You see, if you believe that any one nation is a city set on a hill, then you believe, and you're going to have to believe that it is a church's job to keep that city shining. But if you believe that the church is the city set on a hill, then it's the role of the church to bring light to darkness. Our world has so much darkness and we're in need of a people that stand outside of the craziness and are willing to shine light, to willing to shine the light of God's powerful love on whoever it might be because we don't mourn and we don't grieve the way others do who have no hope. We don't watch elections the same way as others do who don't have any hope. 
We don't watch politics the same way as others do who don't have any hope. We are a city set on a hill that shine the light of God's power on all people because we have hope. And so when Jesus, it says there at the end of chapter 24, is lifted up, he leaves them and is taken up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. We have that opportunity as a church. Come what may, president number 44, president number 45, president number 46, to stay continually in great joy because we serve the ruler of all the kingdoms. We remember the plan. We believe the prophets. And we will stay and receive the one power that matters. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.